When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we begin our preseason countdown of our Cracked Rackets top 10 teams heading into the 2024 Division I dual match season. Of course, we've got a lot of great episodes, a lot of fun conversations coming for all of you college tennis fans over the next five weeks as all of us eagerly anticipate the start of another year, of course, as we have done over the past few seasons. What we're going to be doing over the next five weeks is offering our case for our preseason top 10. We'll be breaking down each of our teams in depth, talking about how they performed in 2023, who they bring into this 2024 season on the roster, whether it be returners or new additions. Did anyone have a breakout fall? Who's the most valuable point on the team? What's the ceiling? What's the floor? What does the schedule look like? Again, it's one of my favorite exercises we do here at Crack Rackets each and every season. We are amped up and excited to reveal our preseason top 10 teams. And joining me on today's show, as he will on each and every preseason top 10 Division One's pod, women's podcast, excuse me, that we have over the next five weeks and will join me as our co-host of The Deciding Point throughout the course of the 2024 season is a man you all know best as the returning champion of returning champions here on this show. Of course, founder of the No Ad, No Problem blog and podcast. He is our dear friend here at Cracked Rackets. It's John J. Parsons. Jay, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. I know we already kicked off our College Tennis 2024 content, but we're getting into teams today. You excited? This makes it feel real. I know we did the preview. We talked about all the machinations that go on behind the scene, but this really feels real. We are debuting number 10. So, yeah, I'm excited. We're looking through rosters. We're looking through schedules. This is how I prepare for those that ask, and I constantly get asked, how do you juggle all of these teams, all of these names? Well, it helps to broadcast as many of them as we do now at Cracked Rackets. You see something 10 weeks consecutively. I like to think eventually it's the Gladwell 10,000 hours theory. You're just going to master it. But yeah, it's my favorite exercise because it allows me to take the deep dive. It allows me to consolidate some of my takes I may or may not have had heading into the year, and I get to spend a lot of time with you. I get to spend a lot of time with Chris Halliors. That is perhaps the greatest benefit of all. But yeah, again, it's going to be a pretty standard format for each of our top 10 preview shows. We're going to do our best to adjust accordingly as we deem necessary. It's also worth noting, 
I'm going to do my best to track someone down from all of these programs, whether it's coaches, whether it's players. I'm going to try my best to collaborate on those interviews with Jay, with Chris, because God knows all of these coaches have heard enough from me over the years. So again, a lot of fun preview content on the horizon. We hope you'll stick with us here on the Great Shot Podcast over the next five weeks as we prepare for the 2024 college tennis season. And of course, as we get closer to the start of dual match play, we'll let all of you know what our broadcast schedule looks like for the year as well. That said, we start tonight with number 10 in our Division One women's preseason top 10 and making their return, dare I say, to the top of the college tennis ranks. I don't know if number 10 is the tippy top that this program may be accustomed to occupying, but number 10 on our list this year are, uh, is our, I always struggle with the grammar proper, whatever it may be. Anyways, leave it in West off. The Florida Gators, number 10 in our preseason top 10. And this is my stat I want to start the framing of this conversation with Jay before we get into their 2023. I went through the history books because I was curious coming off of a stat you revealed to me about, again, only two Stanford classes in history have ever not won NCAA titles during their time on the Stanford women's team. That streak or that could add a third team this year if Stanford doesn't win it. Well, Florida's another team with a lot of success historically that fans of this podcast may not be as aware of because that success happened before the start of the Great Shot podcast. This Florida team winning its last national championship back in 2017. But it's worth noting they have the second most titles of any program in Division I women's college tennis. Seven to their name again, 2017. 11, 12, 17, the most recent iterations of championship winning Gators. Here's the stat I want to start today's podcast with in talking about the Florida Gators. They have gone since that 2017 tournament, five different NCAA championships without winning or appearing in the NCAA final. It's the second longest gap in the program's history since they reached their first final in 1998. Now, there was a longer gap between 03 and 2010, but here's the point I'm trying to make. This last five-year stretch has been the exception, not the rule, to Florida women's tennis. They are pretty consistently battling at the top of the women's game. And I understand the landscape has changed. The recruiting has changed. The quality of coaching everywhere has just gotten better, making the entire landscape more competitive. But Florida women's tennis has meant something over the years. And that's why coming off of a 2023 season where they went 18 and 8, you know, We'll get into the machinations. We're gonna I like that word. Shout out to you, Jay. I'm gonna use that probably a lot over the course of this series. We'll get into that of their 2023 season, but I just feel that's appropriate framing, Jay, when we enter this conversation. It's been a while since we've talked about a Florida team like this. Well, a few things, Gruskin. Let's make sure that you use the word machinations correctly throughout the duration of our podcasting <laughs> together. It is not used to discuss their schedule or results last year. That would be improper use. But I, too, have a stat. So birds of the feather flock oh, certainly together here. I was going to raise the fact that, yes, since winning that title in 2017, they have made three consecutive second round appearances followed by two sweet 16 round of appearances. I went back and looked because that is a historically bad stretch for the Florida Gators since the NCAA tournament expanded to a 64 team field in 1999 between 1999 and their title in 2017. 
Florida failed to make the round of 16 one time. Yeah. And here we are over what I would call the Alex Gruskin era of college <laughs> tennis, 2018 through today. They had three second round appearances and two round of 16 appearances. Absolutely, historically, historically bad drought for the Florida Gators. And look, they haven't had an Embry walk through those doors. They, ha- Although they did have, obviously... I guess the point I'm trying to make is they may not have had that superstar tier one talent, but they had a lot of good players come through over the last few seasons. Obviously, Kessler headlining that list. Um, I'm blanking. Who went to Texas last year, who was a pretty darn good player throughout the course of her career. She's no Embry, but Marley Zane. Yeah, Marley Zane. What I'm saying is they had talent to be in the mix each and every year. They had a bunch of really good players up and down the roster, and just things hadn't clicked for them the way they needed to to compete at the top of the game. And that's what made looking back at their 2023 season so fascinating to me, Jay. Again, 18-8 and eight overall. This is a team that did not make the national indoors. They were knocked out by Texas A&M in the kickoff weekend. Three losses of their eight were to the Aggies, a team that was unequivocally top eight. And again, a couple points here and there, maybe they're in the semifinal hunt. Certainly if Brandstein never gets injured, you feel like they are in the national championship hunt after what we saw at the indoors. Three losses to them. They were knocked out by UNC, the eventual national champions in the round of 16. They win the doubles point, by the way, in Chapel Hill. Not too shabby there. A loss to Georgia. They were a final eight and final four team. You know, a loss to Pepperdine certainly was a top 10 team all season long. You know, the match they certainly want back is the loss at Kentucky, 4-2. That's the only reprehensible loss from last year's squad. 4-1 loss at Tennessee. That was a really good Tennessee team. So I don't think that's a bad loss by any stretch of the imaginations. But here's what I'm trying to say. For the most part last year, Florida beat who they were supposed to beat. And it was a group that you knew... They were bringing everyone back in the subsequent season. Like It was very much a part one of a building process for this particular Florida nucleus. With that context, how do you look at their 2023? Well, I think it's nothing but an underperformance. I think we just kind of established sort of the precedent that this Florida team needs to benchmark itself against. And I think certainly as we evaluate these 2023 seasons, whether they underperform or overperform or just right, it has to be in context of that particular team on its face, blank resume. Sure. Make the sweet 16 fall to defend, uh, fall to champion North Carolina, second straight year. They do that. Yeah. Pretty, pretty okay. For a Florida team that's won the second most NCAA titles in women's tennis, underperformance. Absolutely. I think that's fair. I would point out, again, it was a younger group and players who were older were in new positions. For instance, Carly Briggs was asked to step into the top of the lineup. Four and six at that number one spot. She then goes six and four at two. Sarah Dahlstrom asked to step into that top spot. She goes eight and four overall at that number one position. Again, something to build on, certainly getting those reps in the top two spots. Obviously, Alicia Dudney, Rachel Galis, they were exceptional in the middle of the lineup for the Gators. A big reason for their consistency against lesser teams. Did they have the juice at five and six against top opponents? They did not. Their win leader at the number five spot, Emily D'Oliviera, eight and six there overall in the year. Bent to Spay, five and seven at the number six spot. So again, 
definitely some room for growth with the team that brings all those actors back. And certainly the big thing for them is how much better they got in doubles as the season progressed, that they found real teams that they can build around again this season. Again, Dudney and Spey were 22 and three, uh, uh, 22, excuse me, 12 and three at the top spot, 16 and five overall on the year. Briggs and Galis, 11 and six, uh, De La Vieira, seven and two with Sophie Williams. But again, we can get into how some of their new pieces might fit in that doubles lineup as well. Here's the th- I guess what I, the argument I would make is the floor didn't fall out beneath any of the Gators last year. Now, did anyone maybe exceed expectations? Maybe Galis, Dudney, that's it. But you feel pretty good that this group can replicate at a minimum what they did last season, Jay. And I'm, I, I, I mean, again, that's why I would say probably about just right. Is last year this group finished top 16? I don't think they were better than that. I think they met the, the standard I would have had for them. Yeah, that's a little bit of a different framing that I think I would take on the question, which is with the talent and group that they had, did they kind of go just right? Sure. I think that's what you expected of them. They did the same as they basically did in 2022. No ups, no downs. I think, again, relative to Florida, a Florida team that hit rock bottom in 2018, 2019, you would expect to see that curve continue to bend in the upward direction. I don't think 2023 was as big of a step forward as they needed to show. Well, I think that's a fair point to make. And as you look towards 2024, I definitely think there's some urgency for this group. I mean, obviously, Carly Briggs is in her last year on the draw. Becerra Dahlstrom, now a senior as well. The Oliviera, Dudney, both upperclassmen. Interesting returners, by the way. Again, Dudney, 16-4 and four in dual match play. 12-3 and three at the three spot in the SEC. That ain't nothing to, you know, blink your eyes at. Galis, 16 and 3. You feel like she could take another step forward next, uh, this season, excuse me, as well, entering her sophomore campaign was certainly one of the better freshmen we didn't talk enough about throughout the course of last season. And they could be asked to play in the exact same rules next year. You know, as you look at their returners, that's maybe where you start from a most interesting standpoint. Who is, what is the part of the lineup of the returns that are most fascinating to you? What, what's, what's the thing you're looking at? Well, first off, I I do think this is a very experienced squad, right? The majority of the players we expect to contribute in singles will all be upperclassmen. So that is nice to have. And so you would expect that if they produce the same results as last season, to me, that's a step back. So you do expect... They're like last year's Tennessee. Sure, but there's no Tennessee. I mean, last season was the first season Tennessee had ever beaten Florida in that match that you mentioned. Maybe it was one other before, but the record was something crazy, like 50 and one, 50 and two. But so there's no Tennessee. Uh, and those are not the expectations of this Florida program. I think for me, the reason why this Florida program is where it is in our rankings is because of that experience and returning the entirety of that roster pretty much, but also some of the jumps we've seen from these players. To me, the inflection point right now is how real is the jump we've seen from Emily Day Oliveira, who was bottom of the lineup for them last season, who's made a real jump this fall in in her showing and winning the Southeast Regional, winning matches there at Fall Nationals. That, to me, is going to be a good indication for if they can better compete at the bottom of the lineup, uh, more so than they could last season. What's more important to you, 
do the returners have to be better than they were last year or do the new additions have to be good right away? Because we've talked about the returners and again, there's a lot of experience there, but you also talk about bringing in two pretty good freshmen and you can only expect so much from freshmen at the highest of the highest levels maybe right away. But Kavia Lopez was one of the most coveted recruits in her class, someone who's been a top 20 junior in the world, someone whose aggressive game style is something maybe that's been lacking otherwise in this Florida lineup over the past few years. And, you know, again, I think she's going to be able to contribute right away, maybe even more so in doubles than singles at a really high level. She had a pretty solid fall as well. You bring in someone in Malvina Ravinska, who is 51 as a career high in the junior rankings. Again, not the worst place for her to be otherwise, even if we still don't know a ton about her from the fall results. Like, is it more important for the returners to step afo- to take a step forward or for those two to be good right away? That's a tough question. I do think based on the fall, I think Kavia Lopez and Ravinska are in different buckets right now. There's certainly more expectations from Kavia Lopez given her pretty solid results in the fall. I think you... I don't think you have as many questions about these returners. I think you need Kavia Lopez to deliver a gayless style freshman season from last year that is the expectation because if she's able to do that maybe she jumps some of these more experienced players you get to play a senior or a fifth year towards the bottom of the lineup which would really help this florida team so i would say it's more important that kavia lopez adapts and thrives very quickly in the collegiate environment you mentioned the regional results and certainly you're right emily de oliviera getting a win over carol lee beating her teammate rachel galis that's probably the headline takeaway from that and you know again given that given the last year's lineup it's going to be really hard to justify this but i agree with you because if kavia lopez can play one and you can just push everyone else down the lineup. And again, that's the highest possible aspiration. But she's got real weapons. She's got real athleticism. Like, it would just be fascinating to see where she ends up in the lineup ultimately. Because again, the higher she gets, if Briggs is playing three, not two. Like, just the physicality she brings. Talk about a nightmare matchup. Florida's not getting clinched on at that spot unless it's against elite, elete competition or another team in my opinion. Uh, opinion has an elite day and again if Dudney if D'Oliviera if Galis if that's your four five six like come on now that now you're talking about a team that can compete at those positions really against everyone maybe even a Stanford and a UNC like how good is she right away again that's a really high aspiration but I feel pretty certain about the rest of the returners. Like, I know their level. I know what they're capable of. Dudney may be a little bit more upside still to tap into than some of the others, but I I do think Kavi Lopez could be a swing player for this group. If she can be as good... Like, what if she puts together a Reese Brantmeyer season? Like, how massive would that be for the Gators? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. She's not Reese Brantmeyer. But the the junior results are pretty darn good. Maybe yeah, not. You're right. A tier good, below but Brandmeyer, like, but the last thing we're going to see is her play number one in these first few matches. You're yeah. just not going to do that. You're going to let some of the more experienced players up at the top weather that storm, get her experience in the collegiate environment. Now, is there a world where she plays one for them 
relatively soon. Yes, particularly because that is the weak spot for this Florida team. When you look at some of the teams that we have ranked above them, Florida does not have a world beater on that roster. They do not have a player that is top 10 caliber. That is going to be their weakness throughout the duration of this season. Their depth is absolutely going to be a very strong part of their lineup. Four, five, and six are all going to be very strong. There's not a lot of room between a lot of these players one through six. So it's not going to be a surprise if anyone pops up at that number one spot for me at this point. It's fair. Again, their strength is probably their weakness as well. One through six, everyone's about as good. But one through six, again, there's no clear standout, no delineation of what the lineup should look like. And, you know, again, we've alluded to it earlier, but in terms of breakout falls, how that's impacted the rankings right now, the highest ranked Florida Gator is Emily D'Oliviera, 23 in the country after her 12-4 and four fall. You have Carly Briggs, 38 in the country. She had a 5-4 and four fall. Rachel Galis, 8-2. She's 63 in in the country again those are your three ranked gators right now it's safe to say Dia Oliveira was the one with the breakout fall right she's the player who's probably stood out from the skaters roster the most so far this season yeah absolutely she was one of the breakout stars overall from the fall and the the aggression that she showed throughout the fall was something we hadn't seen in some of her previous matches so absolutely a standout and i will say i think when we do these rankings you look at fall results and you put less stock in the results of more experienced players. Like Sarah Dahlstrom hardly played this fall. Carly Briggs, five and four, really not great. But these are very experienced players. You have no idea how much were they playing over the summer? How did they need to finish something academic wise in the fall and going to focus more in the spring? Like you never really know with these experienced players. So when you do see these jumps like Emily Day. Oliviera or even Rachel Galis just solidifying her form from last season. I think you put more stock into that because you're less concerned about the experienced players. So seeing that jump from some of these players on the Florida roster that weren't at the top of the roster last season, to me, actually elevated this Florida team into our top 10 rankings. Yeah. Again, you look for D. Oliviera, who beats Isabella Fennin, very good veteran for Miami. Beats Carly Briggs in three sets. Briggs played above her last year. She beats Carol Lee three and one. Lee was top 15 player all of last season. Then a three set win over the teammate Galis as well in the final. That's a really good run. By the way, Kavia Lopez, Melvina Vravinska, semifinalists in doubles at that event. Lopez knocked down three set by Georgia Tech veteran Kylie Bilchev in the round of 16 in singles. Not a terrible three set loss for Lopez earlier, early in her college career, but that's a real run. Like that is that is a real four match run to the ITA regional title for D'Oliviera. And again, she's the breakout player, but you talk about the lack of delta between these players in terms of their level and what we see. Florida's got some fighters, like outdoors in mucky conditions. This is a team we saw in the round of sixteen, really these past two years. Yes, North Carolina scoreboard wise, it's looked pretty comfortable. The first two hours of those matches are always slugfests, and you just wonder if at this point, will that plus the experience be enough to tilt two matches. Again, they beat A&M once, or they clean up that Kentucky match, whatever it may be. Florida can be knocking on the door of the final site, which to our point from earlier has to be the minimum standard for this program, given historically the success they have typically experienced. And, you know, again, to put the final bow on all the roster questions, Jay, this is a new 
question we are introducing uh, here this season to our preseason top 10 previews. Who's their MVP? Who's that most valuable point in the lineup? As you look towards projecting this Florida team, who's the player that will swing? Hey, here's the ceiling. Here's the floor for this Florida team moving forward. You pick a position as well. Well, I'll pick a player and I'll go bigger than just like the, I think this will determine their entire season. And that's uh, Alicia Dudney because we have not seen her play a single match since May of 2023. Didn't show up in the fall. She was there, but she didn't play any matches. She hasn't played UTR events. So she's been AWOL and she has been a consistent linchpin, a strong winning percentage every season she's been at Florida. I don't know where she is right now in what I assume is an injury recovery. If she is not at her best, that cripples this entire Florida lineup, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, again, she was so good last season, doesn't he? 16 and 4, 12 and 3 in the middle of the lineup, and she's got some real weapons. Again, uh, no doubt about that. Rachel Galis is fascinating to me because she ended her season, I think, winning her last 10 decisions in eight of her last 10 matches overall, 16 and three on the year. You know, again, makes the regional final. So it seems like she's coming in with some pretty good form, but it's really tough for anyone to follow up a 16 and three season. You know, again, if she goes 15 and five or 14 and five, that's regression for Florida team that really relied on her last season. So I think she's an important player, but the most valuable point for me is the number one spot for this Florida team. They went 12 and 10 last year at the top spot. Again, we've talked about this all season long for this Florida, uh, all preview long for this Florida squad. And I think this very much permeates into their ceiling floor conversation. If they're winning two thirds of their matches at one, this team's going to be winning the SEC and are in that conversation with Georgia, with A&M good enough, maybe on the right day to knock them off. Because again, Florida has six real players this year, at least. Like, even if just one of Ravinska Lopez is a contributor right away, you know, again, whether it's Bentis Spee, who's out of Spay, who's out of the lineup, and that feels most likely, whether it's, you know, again, whether Dahlstrom, Briggs, Dudney, Galis, De La Viera, however they want to mix things up, like, they have real depth. They have real options, four through six. This is a team that showed real signs of doubles improvement. For me, the most valuable point is number one for them. If they can just win two-thirds of their matches, which, again, sounds easy. It's not. Think about who they're going to be playing. Stoyana, Vidmanova. Like We can go through the laundry list of players, uh, whether it's CB or Kayla Cross for Vanderbilt. Like There's a lot of really good number ones throughout the SEC. It's the SEC freaking seat. One of our biggest storylines coming in is, is the SEC back as the top conference in women's college tennis? I think this year you might argue yes. If Florida can get wins at that number one spot, Jay, I always see a pathway for them for two and a half, three points. It's finding that fourth is going to be difficult against elite competition. That, to me, is the key that defines their ceiling. What would you say? I think that's a really great pick. I think, ultimately, this is going to come down to one and two 
right? How much can they get wins at the top of the lineup? Because you feel like with their, whoever they roll out at four five and six are going to be able to compete with anyone and truly anyone. Like I do feel very strongly about their depth here at four five and six. I think there is a drop off after six. I haven't seen enough from Ravinska. I think that's an open question, but yeah, if they can move that number one winning percentage, that number two winning percentage, just to be two thirds, like you mentioned, that completely changes the game sitting here right now i don't know who that player is on this roster that gets that done but someone has to step up spay isn't a bad option at six as well that's why the combination of her and ravinska again you don't feel as good as if it's maybe a lopez given the results we've seen between the two but you don't again another year i'm assuming hoping another year of development improvement and again experience above all else but that's fair and yeah, again, I, I am also doing some projection in doubles. Again, one of the most memorable things from my round of 16 interviews going into NCAs last year was hearing Coach Thornquist rave about Dudney and Spey, how good they were as a doubles team, how he thinks they've just scratched the surface of how good they might be moving forward. And again, this is a team that went out and beat UNC in the doubles point in the round of 16 last year. And you know, again, if Florida can get in the mix there and be up 1-0, it's going to be really hard to find four singles wins against them. Three, fine. Four is a really tough number given their depth, particularly in the middle, yes, of that lineup. I think that's a look at their ceiling. When you look at the floor for this team, again, it's worth contextualizing the conference. Georgia, A&M, who have both been really good now. Georgia forever. A&M, obviously, you just can't deny the run they've been on these past few seasons. Vanderbilt's back in the mix. Obviously, what Tennessee did last year, something everyone's paying attention to. There's a lot of talent in the SEC, even before Texas and Oklahoma come over next season. But by the way, maybe that adds to the urgency for Florida right now. What does the glass breaking from underneath them look like for this Florida team? Do they fall ever beneath the top 16? No way, right? Well, I think it's thin margins for this Florida team. I really do. I think that they're an injury away from absolutely falling out of the top 16 because if they're an injury, if they suffer so you any really injury think it's any six, of these top six players. So you think it's really a top six, not a top seven. You really think there is a significant drop off from Lopez to Spay or Rudvinska? Well, Spay had a losing record at six last year. So, yeah, absolutely. Our expectations is that the player who plays six here would have a pretty dominant winning record at six. So you swap that out with the losing record, a 500 record at five, at 500. The wins from Dudney and Galis at that 3-4 spot, if they play there, are not going to get you over the hump. So, yeah, I do think they are uh, a player deep. Now, Ravinska, who... Looked okay in the fall. Maybe she really shines in the spring, and now they're seven strong. But yeah, I do think they're an injury away from falling outside the top 16. I also think they're a healthy squad away from really pushing those top SEC teams and making a push for being at par with some of these Texas A&M and Georgia teams. Again, they played Texas A&M three times last year. That's two cores that know each other very well. You're going to see a lot of, again, overlap perhaps in matches. And, you know, looking at the schedule for this Florida team, the big difference between this year and last year, again, they're hosting a kickoff regional. Last year they had to go to Texas A&M. This time they're hosting Wake Forest, San Diego, and Florida International. They will be heavy favorites to advance in that region, even if, again, San Diego coming up of a pretty good year last year. Ooh, you made a face at me. Okay. Uh, yeah, they are comfortable, comfortable, comfortable favorites. 
I mean, look, we're talking about a squad that has not seen Dudney play since May. Okay. And I think we're looking at a San Diego team. I don't think they match up great with Florida. You'd want to have a little uh, more heavy hitters at the top of the lineup. But yeah, if they don't have Dudney for that match, maybe she's still getting healthy. I don't think that that is an easy out necessarily for All Florida. Right. Fair enough. Again, something I'm sure we'll talk about as we get closer to kickoff weekend. But after that, three non-conference matches, I think, in total. And obviously this presupposes they get into the national indoors if they don't perhaps then you'll see a changing in the schedule but they've got i guess four baylor before the kickoff weekend florida state michigan in a four-day span and they're going to ann arbor for that michigan match pepperdine's coming to lake nona for a february match and then it's pretty much all sec play the rest of the way so again if this team gets into the national indoors all they really need is one win and they will be a top 16 team that's just how it's going to work, I think, if the SEC, if they stay healthy, if they par for the course, the level we saw from them last year, that gets them into the top 16. That's what I look at at the schedule. That at Michigan match is the fascinating one to me because last year Michigan came to Florida. Florida knocked off the Wolverines outdoors. That match, February 6th, spoiler alert, it's going to be played inside. And here's the thing. It's the Tuesday before the national indoors they're both teams going to be flying from there to Seattle uh, in their ideal worlds. If Florida goes out and wins that match, now the national indoors is a whole new ball game. Now it's a really real, oh, wait a second. Maybe this Florida team does have the goods this year. They just beat a team in Michigan who I think is going to be everyone's sneaky pick to have a really good national indoors run. That to me is the most fascinating match on the schedule. What say you? Couldn't care less about the results of that match. Okay, it, it very much gives me Georgia goes to Ohio State, gets dusted. Ohio State, you know, rolls, uses that throughout the entire season to buoy their ranking. But they're actually <laughs> not as good of a team as Georgia. Uh, and whatever happens in Ann Arbor, like, doesn't matter at all. Now, if Florida does is. beat Michigan, uh, what's up with Michigan is the question. The... The main match to circle here is the Pepperdine match. Absolutely, that match will tell you everything you need to know about the strength of this Florida team as they roll into SEC play. That's the one you circle. Throw out all the indoor stuff. Florida doesn't even care about the indoor stuff. They don't even practice indoors getting ready for indoors. They maybe hit once or twice. Uh, so, no, throw it out. There he is. Typical man raised in that station of the world versus a midwest man through and through who values indoor tennis it's worth noting a&m and vanderbilt road matches for the gators this year south carolina auburn tennessee georgia all home matches sneaky at lsu by the way to kick off conference play march 1st that'll be a fun one for those that know because that lsu roster slowly but surely accumulating plenty of fun talent I mean, again, it's a really solid Florida Gators squad. A lot of known faces. A team that, on the men's side, would be ranked sixth. Like, just with the returners they have, the depth they have, you don't have those, you know, again, you still feel the COVID depth, I suppose. And for them, that's keeping Briggs the additional year. And just, you know, the fact that if everyone is healthy, they have six solid options at all six single spots. No one you feel like is going to get rolled. And certainly that depth has been the defining characteristic of this three-year era we have had uh, the last three years in college tennis. 
we're not doing predictions this year. Ceiling and floor was our discussion, but I suppose in that floor, Jay, we discussed you think this team is capable of falling outside of the top 16. Is the ceiling win an NCAA tournament this year? Like, I don't see that in the cards. I do think this is a team that can that goes into the year saying, we are making the final site. Yeah, to me, that is the ceiling. And yeah. to me, that, like... To me, it looks like something where the last two years in the round of 16, they have been the 16 seed and have had to face North Carolina. To me, it's like, hey, they've found a way to not be ranked 16. That means they might still have to go on the road, but they get a much more favorable draw. I could definitely see them pulling off an upside and making that final site. That's where the road would end for me. Yeah, I again, quarterfinals feels like a potential ceiling, but certainly Coach Thornquist uh, has had some success over the years. And you look at their assistant coaches, Jeremy Bay and Samantha Mannix coming over from Iowa, by the way, in case anyone was curious what that coaching staff looks like now. I know there's been uh, Lord Embry, obviously, longtime assistant there recently leaving. So those are your 2024 Florida Gators number 10 in our preseason rankings. And again, a testament to the depth we have in Division I women's college tennis this year. Enjoy it while it lasts, folks. This is a really good team with really solid options everywhere, a lot of depth. Some of you may be offended that your school wasn't put here and Florida was put 10. Rest assured, we still got nine spots to go, so they may be higher than the Florida Gators. And again, for all angry texts, tweet at jtweetstennis. Um for people who like the shows at Crack Rackets at Al Gruskin, you know where to find us. With that said, Jay, before we go, I want you to plug some stuff. Manny Diaz on the podcast, Garrett Johns on the podcast. A lot of people coming on the No Ad No Problem show. Talk me through what who you got and what you've been talking about. Yeah, you know, a little stopping by, having some you know quick chats with folks. But yeah, uh, Georgia head coach Manny Diaz came on released that uh, this week. Really great conversation. I wanted to chat with him about the ways in which college tennis have evolved, given he's entering into his 36th season at Georgia. Really fascinating conversation about how tennis in a lot of ways has benefited from the overall investment from schools in athletics. You talk about the difference in facilities 20 years ago from a Georgia to some of the other peers. Now everyone has great facilities. Everyone has great athletic training facilities. So that was a really interesting conversation. That Georgia program is going through a massive transition right now. They only return three people on this year's squad and a lot of unforeseen challenges uh, faced there by the coaching staff in the Ethan Quinn turning pro, Alex Mickelson not coming, Ignacio Buse not coming. So interesting time. We talked about the 2026 NCAA tournament at Georgia. It was a really, really great conversation. So yeah, he's the most recent guest we've had. We've had uh, head coach of Penn, Rich Bonfiglio. We've had players on. So more interviews throughout uh, trying to bring on people that have a different perspective. And then of course, we'd be busy with preseason content. I'd love to hear it. Well, again, No Ad, No Problem is the podcast and blog. Be sure to check it out if you haven't already. And a thank you to Jay, who will be joining us on every episode previewing our Women's Division One Top 10 rankings, of course. We'll be back next week to continue our countdown, whether it's our Top 10 Women's Rankings, our Top 10 Men's Rankings. We've got great content coming every Tuesday through Friday over the next five weeks here on our Crack Rackets 
Great Shot podcast feed. And then before you know it, it'll be the start of the 2024 season. So again, looking forward to providing these sorts of previews for all of you college tennis fans moving forward. Of course, the reason we're able to do so day in, day out across our various podcasts is because of the tireless efforts of our super producer, Daniel Wasseff, who, as always, has a f*** of an editing job to do day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A thank you to him. And a reminder, you can check out all of our shows. This one, the Mini Break podcast feed, Correct Interviews podcast feed, wherever you listen to your podcast. Make sure you like, rate, review, not just here, but Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. You know all the places to look at this point's listeners. With that said, for the fantastic John J. Parsons, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jay, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. And we will see you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.